Me and Rod, um, we're really enjoying this series. It's a bit like drinking from a fire hose. Um, um, this morning is going to be like that on steroids. Um, so whatever you need to do to just, you know, hyperventilate for a few seconds just to get that oxygen level up or, or whatever it's going to take to hold your concentration. There are some riches in this passage that we have in front of us today. Um, but they're um, only f- there for those, I guess, who stay the course. So um, hang on in there with me, and we're going to have some fun with Matthew's Gospel this morning. Um, part of the reason for um, uh, the amount of stuff that's coming at us is just the big chunks that we're uh, chewing off here. We're going to be in uh, Matthew chapters 14 through the beginning of 16 this morning, which is a lot of material. Um, it centers on five stories from the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. And each one of them could provide us with enough for a really challenging message. Uh, But what we're going for in this Matthew series, as I guess you know, is um, to provide a kind of overview of the book. Uh, We're leaving plenty of meat on the bones so that each of us has something to go away and really work with and chew on uh, during the week. Um, And there are some advantages to doing it that way. When we force ourselves to keep our eyes on the forest and not so much on uh, getting caught up in the trees, uh, we can find treasures that you just can't find any other way. If you bite off big chunks of the Bible, uh, you find that God doesn't just speak to us through the bumper sticker texts. Uh, He doesn't just speak to us through isolated words and sentences on the page, but through the structure in which they're placed. He speaks to us through the way his word is organized. And um, this section that we're in today is a real case in point uh, for that. Matthew chapters 14 and 15 um, don't just present us with five uh, independent stories. We have five stories arranged with a purpose. The way that Jesus walked these events out and the way that Matthew then wrote them down we find ourselves reading a section of the Bible which is kind of symmetrical. It begins with a feeding miracle, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, and it ends with another feeding miracle, the feeding of the 4,000. Immediately after the feeding of the 5,000 at the start, we have a faith story, the story of Peter walking out to Jesus on the water. And immediately before the feeding of the 4,000 at the end, we have another faith story, Uh, The story of the Canaanite lady whose daughter Jesus heals. And right in the middle of it all, uh, we have the story that turns out to be central to the meaning of this entire section. Quite why it's so central is one of the big questions that I think Matthew wants us to get our heads around as we read this. Uh, But we'll get to that as we go along. Uh, For now, let's just take Matthew's word for it and uh, concentrate on that central story for our reading Uh, And then we'll go back to the beginning, we'll work our way through it, uh, and hopefully that will help us get our heads wrapped around what God wants to say to us here this morning. Okay, everybody in? Yeah? Right, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 15. And I'm just going to read the first 14 verses of that chapter. Matthew chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God... 
They're not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. Now one of the great understatements of the Bible. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? (laughs) And he replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They're blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. This is God's word. Let's take a seat and pray together as we start here. (coughs) Gracious God, we call out to you um, because we are um, really in need of feeding. Um, Lord, we uh, need physical food. We we, uh, take time to do that every day, uh, but we also need Uh, spiritual food to nurture and develop the spiritual life inside us to produce the fruit that we're longing to produce as your children and God this is it you're spreading a table for us here and um, we pray that you might uh, just help us to really grasp it help us to really feed on it to bring it into our hearts to understand it and we pray in Jesus name that you would uh, alert us as we go along to particular places in our lives where we need to change and things that we need to do differently. Uh, But also, would you just give us a bigger vision of Jesus and all that he's done for us uh, and enable us just to pass that along uh, as we know and learn more of it. So we pray all these things for his glory, um, that his name might be exalted in our lives. Amen. Okay, if you don't have a Bible, um, it's going to help you as we march through our section this morning. So just raise a hand um, if you want one and someone will bring one to you. Okay, so as I explained in our introduction here, Jesus works his way towards this really spiky interaction with the, uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that we just read via two previous stories. The first one is the feeding of the 5,000 and the second one is Jesus walking on the water Now, both of them depend on a bit of context, which Rod laid out for us last time. At the end of chapter 13, we learned that Jesus was rejected in his hometown. And at the beginning of chapter 14, we learned that John the Baptist was executed by Herod. You remember that that, uh, message from last week? In fact, the moment when Jesus hears the news that John has been killed is kind of the moment that triggers the action in our section here. Chapter 14, verse 13, tells us that when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Now, why do you think that was? Well, the text makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? The reason was grief. The Jesus we worship isn't less than fully God, uh, but he also isn't less than fully man. He lived a human life. He formed human friendships. He suffered human hurts. John the Baptist was a brother in ministry to Jesus. And uh, now that brother was gone, killed in the most brutal, uh, wasteful, arbitrary way by someone who uh, didn't deserve to uh, tie up John's bootlaces. And Jesus was gutted, wasn't he? Isn't that uh, encouraging to us? 
Jesus knows what it's like to lose someone. He went through that whole grim dance. And knowing that, I think, can help us uh, when we're called to go through it too. Even after the feeding of the 5,000, we find Jesus is still in this same place. Uh, If you look in chapter 14, verse 22, he sends his disciples uh, and the crowd away, and he spends the whole night on the mountainside praying, needing time alone. Even days later, in chapter 15, verse 21, he's still in that place, taking even more radical action to get away from it all by traveling to the region of Tyre and Sidon in Gentile territory. He truly was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And that's our God. When we lose someone, we don't just have to make ourselves believe that the pain of it is a kind of illusion like Buddhists do, or that dying is really no worse than living when you look at it kind of philosophically like atheists do. Jesus gives us permission to let death be what we know it in our hearts to be, a monstrosity, a violation Jesus gives us permission to work the agony of it through, following in steps that he walked in himself. But that just makes me think what actually happens in our text is uh, all the more extraordinary. Um, Because even though Jesus really needed some time alone, that's the the subtext, isn't it? Uh, That didn't happen. In chapter 14, verse 13, when Jesus withdrew, we're told that the crowd followed him. While he was making his way across Lake Galilee in a boat with his disciples, thousands of people were making their way around the shore. So by the time that Jesus arrived at the solitary place that he had in mind, well, it wasn't that solitary, was it? Now, how would you have reacted in that situation if it were you? I know there are lots of places in the Gospels where the disciples find themselves looking at Jesus and asking, who is this man? You know, when he stills the storm or when he raises the dead. But I want to ask it right here, because we're told that when Jesus saw this crowd, he had compassion on them. And I want to know how he did that, because wouldn't it have been just so easy for him to get really, really cross, or just to kind of collapse in frustration, you know, asking what in the world he had to do to get a moment's peace. And yet somehow he was willing and able to see it from the crowd's perspective, Isn't that the kind of leader we really need? Jesus shows me here, I guess, what I'm always aiming for as a parent and completely failing to deliver. But although I often fail to show this kind of selflessness to others, Jesus has never failed to show it to me. You can't miss that when you read through the Gospels, actually, and watch the way that Jesus handles his interaction with his disciples. Even when they're at their most irritating, he's not irritated Jesus is the good shepherd. He's gentle and forgiving. And we can have that confidence that he will be that in our lives too. Isn't that a wonderful thing to experience and to know? Anyway, all that brings us to the central event of our story here, the miraculous feeding of the crowd. Now, there are a couple of details here that I think Matthew wants us to really grasp. Uh, The first is a lesson primarily for the disciples and for us as disciples following them. Realizing that this crowd have followed Jesus around the lake without any thought for how they're going to feed themselves, Jesus' disciples offer him a bit of advice in uh, verse 15. They say, hey boss, look, we're in this remote place here. Um, These guys really ought to be going back to their homes to get some food. But Jesus comes back at them with this startling response. He says, you give them something to eat. 
It struck me as I read that, that Jesus' words apply directly to us, don't they, as we uh, seek to serve the people God has placed around us. I know personally, as I've been kind of finding my feet in this first 18 months of being a pastor, uh, when people come and talk to me about their life circumstances, uh, I often feel just like this. You know, goodness, I feel like I'm in the desert here. You know, where in this remote place am I going to find something to help this person? You know, I'm just me. I think Jesus still wants us to hear these words, though. You give them something to eat. Why? Well, because it makes us kind of take an inventory of what we've got, doesn't it? Just like the disciples did. And when they did that, they realized they did not have that much to offer. And that's okay. When we find we have the opportunity to pray with someone who's hurting and we don't know where to start, that's okay. When we find we have the opportunity to read the Bible with a neighbor and uh, we don't know exactly how to go about that, that's okay. When we find ourselves trying to talk to a friend who's walking away from God, we don't know where to start, that's okay. It's okay if we hear and put into practice the next line of the story. Because when the disciples told Jesus how little they had to work with, look at his response in verse 18. He said to them, bring the people to me. And that's our whole model of ministry right there. That's what we're going for as a church. I hope that's what we're going for as individuals. We see need. We recognize our inability to meet that need. And we bring people to Jesus. That's it. The disciples' role in this story is just to pass out what Jesus creates. Not forgetting to feed themselves with the same stuff along the way, right? There's no call for great originality among the disciples, is there? The way that James handed out the bread and fish, I don't suppose was materially different from the way that John handed out the bread and fish. And the difference, if there was one, didn't really matter. The important thing was that the disciples and the people were all fed the meal that Jesus provided. That's what we have to give to our neighbours. The second detail I think Matthew wants us to spot here is a connection back to the Exodus story. Now, because we've been working our way through Matthew's gospel over these several weeks, we all know Matthew takes special pleasure in this part of it, doesn't he? Highlighting the connections uh, between uh, Jesus and Moses. He loves to show us how Jesus matches and then consistently exceeds uh, everything, uh, all the expectations that Moses sets. And so when Jesus feeds the people miraculously here, Matthew can't resist pulling out all of those threads. Matthew stresses the fact that the crowd followed Jesus out into a remote and desolate place because he wants to remind us that the people of Israel followed Moses out into a remote and desolate place when he freed them from Egypt. And do you remember what happened out there in the desert in Exodus? God provided his people with food with manna from heaven. And that's exactly what Matthew wants us to see going on here. Through his chosen leader, God sustained and satisfied his people in a situation where there was no human way at all that they could be satisfied or sustained. And that's exactly what happens in our text, isn't it? And so for anyone who knew their Old Testament, Matthew was dropping in that challenge again, inviting us to grasp the fact that Jesus is not just a kind of gifted conjurer or not a good teacher misrepresented uh, by his historians. No, Jesus is the long-expected Messiah, 
the one like Moses, only far, far greater. But Matthew doesn't just want to point out the similarities here between Jesus and Moses. Matthew, in, a, in fact, uh, I think mainly wants us to concentrate on the differences. Think about the way the people are fed in this story. Jesus uses raw materials, doesn't he, to feed these people, bread and fishes that the disciples bring to him. Now in Exodus, that's not what happens. Moses just prays and boom, manna appears out of nowhere. So why that difference? It's not as if Jesus can't do what Moses did, is it? Creation out of nothing is implied in this story. Feeding 5,000 people from one lunch is not uh, significantly less miraculous than feeding 5,000 people from one lunch. You don't go from five loaves and two fishes to 12 basketfuls of broken pieces without creating something out of nothing. But Jesus doesn't start with nothing. Now, why is that? Well, listen to the difference that those raw materials make to the shape of the story. In verse 19, we're told that Jesus took the loaves and the fish and he looked up to heaven and he gave thanks and then he broke them and gave them to his disciples. Now, does that remind you of anything? Look forward to Matthew chapter 26 and you'll see Matthew using almost exactly the same words to describe Jesus breaking uh, the loaves at the Last Supper. And that's striking because of what happens next. Jesus takes resources that would have been sufficient to feed one man and his family, five loaves and two fishes, and he divides them between a multitude, 5,000 men and their families. And that's a powerful illustration of what the Last Supper is all about, isn't it? In Matthew 26, Jesus breaks the bread and tells his disciples, take and eat, this is my body. Why? Because he knows that his righteous life, a life that would have guaranteed him perfect, uninterrupted joy in heaven for all eternity, if he had kept it for himself, can guarantee that gift to a multitude if it's broken. In Exodus, the manna was given by God to sustain the physical lives of his people in the desert. But what Jesus does here is point forwards to something greater, the breaking of the bread of life on our behalf on the cross. And as we move into the next five, next of these five stories, I think we'll start to see that throughout this section, this is what Jesus has got in mind as he's starting to point us and his disciples towards the cross and its significance. So, right after the feeding of the 5,000, we get the story of Jesus walking on the water. Uh, this is one that I guess all of us are fairly familiar with. You know, many of us grew up with this as a Sunday school story. But I want us to be able to hear it in a slightly new way this morning. So, um, uh, clear your mind of uh, what you think you know about this story and just try to uh, listen now and hear it um, uh, in a fresh way. This is what happens when Jesus walks on the water. He leaves his disciples alone. They don't know where he is or what's happened to him. And for three watches of the night, they're left alone in the dark, being buffeted by the wind and the waves out on the lake. And then at the first signs of dawn, uh, they see something extraordinary. They see Jesus walking towards them across the black surface of the water. Now, water, of, of course, for them symbolizes chaos and death. So it's as if they see him walking across death itself to meet them. And when they see him, they're terrified and they cry out, believing that Jesus is a ghost. 
Now, I don't know about you, but that reminds me of the way the gospel story ends. A few months after these events, Jesus is going to be executed. And three days later, he's going to come back to his terrified, isolated disciples walking across death itself. And they will mistake him for a ghost again. When Peter gets out of the boat and starts to sink in our story, that's not the last time we see Peter struggling with lack of faith, is it? In Matthew 26, Peter will deny Jesus three times and sink again. When Jesus gets into the boat in our story, the disciples worship him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And at the foot of the cross on the day that Jesus was crucified, the Roman centurion in charge of the execution will say exactly those words again. So there's more to this section, isn't there, than meets the eye. The feeding of the 5,000 points us forward to the Last Supper, and then Jesus walking on the water points us forward to the cross and the resurrection. But why did God organize things that way? Well, just like the feeding of the 5,000, I think Jesus is taking the opportunity here to teach us about the meaning of his death and resurrection before it takes place. And that's important because some people say that the Gospels just provide us with the content of Jesus's life and ministry. But we have to go to Paul and the other New Testament writers in order to find the explanation. And those people will normally move on from there to accuse Paul and the other New Testament writers of distorting the message of Jesus's life and ministry, turning it all into this grandiose plan to redeem humanity when the real Jesus was probably only really excited about, you know, kicking out the Romans one day. But now we're actually reading Matthew's gospel. We're discovering that that's just not true, aren't we? When we read the story of Jesus's baptism, we found ourselves faced with Jesus's determination to bear our sins and carry them himself. That's Jesus's idea not just Paul's. When we read the story of Jesus cleansing the leper, we heard him speaking that same phrase that set all creation in order at the beginning, let there be, let there be clean. But that was Jesus's idea, not just Paul's. And now when we see Jesus acting out the significance of his own death and resurrection, once again, we have him serving as his own interpreter. The feeding of the 5,000 teaches us that his perfect life would be broken for the satisfaction of many. That's Jesus's idea, not just Paul's. And now as he comes to his disciples walking on the water, he teaches us one more crucial lesson. Jesus isn't going to die because he has to. Jesus is going to die because he chooses to. That's his idea, not just Paul's. Because this is the striking fact of the story, isn't it? Jesus is pictured in a situation here, walking on the water, where death surely is inevitable. Miles from the shore, on the surface of a stormy lake in the dark, any other person in this position would be doomed, right? And yet Jesus doesn't die. He doesn't even sink. He's impregnable. He's unbreakable. Honestly, what are the threats of the Jews and the Romans really to a man like this? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are plotting to take his life, but do you like their chances? I don't. I've heard it said that the true wonder of Good Friday was not the fact that Jesus was nailed to a cross, but the fact that he stayed there. And this story makes that point, doesn't it? A man who could walk on water could have come down from the cross any moment he chose. But that isn't what he chose. 
And if you've, ever, if you've never asked yourself the reason why that's true, well, I and a number of other people in this room would guarantee to you the answer to that question will change your life. Read in the light of the cross, Peter's determination to walk out to Jesus has got all sorts of lessons for us too. For all his impulsiveness, Peter probably gets it right here, at least at the start. He knows instinctively that if Jesus stands above death, if Jesus is immune from it somehow, then he can stand immune too if Jesus is with him. And that's our hope, isn't it? When all this comes to its fulfillment on the cross, Jesus' ability to march across the surface of death itself gives us confidence that we will march across it too if we trust him. If the hand that grabbed hold of Peter grabs hold of mine, I will walk on the water too when my time comes. But it's also a lesson by contrast, isn't it? Without faith in Jesus, Peter sinks. And we're just like him. Jesus doesn't have to die, but we do. Our hope for a different destiny rests solely on Jesus' intervention. So all of that then brings us to the, uh, the story that we started with, which lies at the centre of this kind of symmetrical uh, structure that Matthew's building. Uh, the story of Jesus' interaction with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees on the subject of what it is that really defiles us. Now, on the surface of the things, this seems like a bit of a swerve in the road, doesn't it? You know, after all this rich teaching about the cross that Jesus has been providing for us, why does uh, Matthew suddenly drop into this seemingly petty uh, controversy about whether the disciples should or shouldn't be washing their hands before they eat? Part of the reason, of course, is that Matthew wants us to feel that jolt. You know, Jesus has just fed a football crowd here with a packed lunch. Surely the Pharisees have got a... Uh, something more important to think about now than this. But as we go along through this part of the text, I think the reason why God placed it here right in the center of our section is going to become really clear. The two feeding stories and the two faith stories uh, have got one strong central theme in common. They are all summons to come to Jesus In chapter 14, verse 18, do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples when they realized that they had nothing to give to the mass of people in front of them? He said, bring them here to me. If we need feeding or rescuing or healing, Jesus' answer is come to me. Jesus is the place where we find the answers that we're looking for. But here in chapter 15, verse 14, did you see that Jesus said exactly the opposite? about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Leave them, he says. They're blind guides. Now, to see why they're so blind, we simply need to look at this complaint that they bring to Jesus. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were slaves to to tradition. They weren't stupid. Uh, They knew God's law probably better than any of us ever will. Uh, And they were willing to make great sacrifices to obey it. Uh, But the problem, as Jesus shows us in a minute, was a heart thing. Uh, Their knowledge and their obedience became an end in itself to them because it impressed and intimidated other people. They imagined that it would impress and intimidate God himself. And the more delighted they became with the way that it impressed and intimidated other people, the more they extended it 
until it ended up including provisions that were completely contrary uh, to the thing itself. They remind me a little bit of the guys on that show, Pimp My Ride, uh, you know, who take uh, classic cars and tweak them and lower them and add wings and scoops and ducts and fins until the poor car ceases to have any of the virtues that made it a classic in the first place. Sometimes I think we imagine the only way to spoil God's word is to remove pieces from it. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law show us that we can spoil it just as effectively by adding stuff on. And that was the nub of the problem here. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had taken the rules about washing uh, that come from the book of Leviticus and are supposed to be applied to priests in the temple. And they made them mandatory for every citizen in every home at every mealtime. And that became so important to them that they couldn't actually see past it even when the kingdom of God was breaking out right in front of their noses. Now this is a case study in the warning that we had the other week, isn't it, from the parable of the sower. If we get used to shutting God out of our lives by finding ways to ignore what he says or ways to add things of our own to it, we gradually cut ourselves off from all of its benefits. Week after week, imperceptibly, But steadily, we can build a bulletproof screen between ourselves and the message that can save us. And tragically, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law here show us what that looks like when the process is complete. In verse 6, Jesus tells us that they nullified the word of God for the sake of their tradition. So that even even, uh, when they had the word of God incarnate standing right in front of them, they couldn't see it. Look at chapter 15, verse 5, and you'll see that Jesus makes a very bold claim here about the Bible. Quoting words from Exodus 20, he says, For God said, honour your father and mother. Now those words were actually written down by Moses, weren't they? They're in the book of Exodus. Jesus himself says that in Mark chapter 7. And yet here he tells us that God said them. What Moses wrote down is what God said. Skip forward to Matthew 22 and you'll see him do the same thing with what David wrote in the Psalms. And this is Jesus's theology of the Bible. The words that the Bible writers wrote down are the words that God now says. In this church, we stand for the reading of God's word, don't we? Because according to Jesus, that's exactly what it is. God's word. And realizing that is crucial Uh, for understanding where Jesus is going here in this text. Jesus' problem with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is that they were setting their own words over God's words. And in Jesus' mind, that's the very opposite of realizing that we have nothing of our own to bring and coming to him to receive the food that we need. His actual application of that principle, of course, is a bit obscure to us now. By devoting their property to God, it seems that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law uh, were um, finding a way to dodge their obligations to look after their aging parents. They created this kind of legal fiction uh, that allowed them to keep on using their property for themselves, but that prevented them from selling it or using it to help anybody else. And yet that general principle couldn't be more contemporary. Are there places in a Modern life where we have traditions that nullify the word of God? You bet. We can see some great examples in other expressions of Christianity, can't we? Praying to Mary and the saints seems like a pretty clear-cut example of a tradition that nullifies the word of God, which tells us plainly that there is one mediator 
between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. But how about something closer to home? It's all too easy just to critique others, isn't it? But how about us? How about the tradition that says that if I've given my 10% to the church, I can close my eyes to all the other needs in the world around me, believing that I've done my bit? That's an accepted norm in Christian circles, isn't it? But does that sound even remotely like the radical self-giving character of Jesus? How about the tradition that says that it's okay for me to post how funny or naughty my children have been all over Facebook? That's an accepted norm in our society. But how well does that gel with what the Bible had to tell us in Ephesians this summer about loving those who are in submission to us in the same way that Jesus loves those who are in submission to him? Jesus doesn't post my idiocy all over the internet. How about the tradition uh, that uh, if I have someone in my family who's gay, that it's okay for me to treat them as a social pariah because that sin is more unacceptable to God than the sins that I commit every day. Does that sound like the approach that Jesus would take? The Jesus who was known for hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes? I don't think so. So do you see this message cuts deep into the norms that we've allowed to grow up over the surface of the gospel? And it warns us, like it warned the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that these kinds of additions can stop the gospel being the gospel at all. Like the Pharisees, I'm sure we comfort ourselves with the knowledge that what we're taking in is good. We read the right books, we go to the right Bible studies. But Jesus tells us that it's what comes out of our hearts that really defiles us. Our words and our thoughts, the norms we establish and the traditions that we practice, these are the things that tell us what's really going on inside. And I know in my own life, that's a problem. If only it could be that the things that I take in were the test. But the problem is me. The problem is my resistance to God and my rejection of God and my belief that I know better than God. The problem is my lack of faith and my fear. And that's the reason why I think this story is right in the middle of these other four. If this story about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is a mirror and I see my own faults in it staring back at me, I need to hear Jesus say, leave them, they're blind guides, and come to me. Let's pick up the pace a bit now and look at the two final stories. In chapter 15, verse 21, Jesus leaves Israel and he heads towards the Phoenician cities of Tyre. And Sidon, this is the region that you might remember Jesus used as a benchmark for uh, hostility towards God in Matthew chapter 11. And yet uh, when he arrives there, something really surprising happens. A Canaanite lady comes out to meet him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Why is that surprising? Well, this lady is a Canaanite. That's the word that's used in the Old Testament to describe the people who lived in the promised land before the Jews showed up. The source of all their problems, the enemy. And yet this Canaanite lady addresses Jesus with the title that captures the Jews' whole hope. She recognizes him as the Messiah, the son of David. So this lady is following in some illustrious footsteps right here. Think Rahab, think Ruth, think the Queen of Sheba. You know, foreigners who put their hope 
in the God of Israel, who claimed uh, the language of Israel as their own. But Jesus' response to her is complete silence. It's almost uh, uncomfortable to read it. He blanks her completely. That's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is it? But we've already seen this as we've gone along in Matthew's gospel. Jesus just doesn't play that by that set of rules. Matthew's gospel has taught us that the real Jesus is profoundly aware of his mission here in his first coming. God had made a promise to the Jews that he intended to keep. Yes, he'd always planned that Jesus' life and ministry would launch an era of outreach to all nations. But the message that would be taken to the nations was one that was shaped and incubated and fulfilled in the land and among the people of Israel. So Jesus just isn't willing to engage with this lady. The time for that part of his mission has not yet come. But she won't take no for an answer. So she kneels before him. The Greek word underneath that word they're kneeling is the same word that's normally translated as worship. She calls out, Lord, Lord, help me. But Jesus still won't be moved. He replies now, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. You've just got to love what happens next, though. The, uh, the updated NIV translation, if you have that, really nails this. The, uh, the lady contradicts him flat out. Yes, it is, Lord, she says. It is right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. She doesn't quibble with Jesus' diagnosis that the Jews are God's children and she is a dog. But she does quibble with him for telling her that the dogs shouldn't be allowed a chance to taste the banquet that's on the table. And so in the end, it's a bit like uh, Abraham pleading with God to spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, isn't it? Where he, he says, far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The lady intercedes with Jesus on what she knows about his own character, using that as the basis. And in the end, her intercession prevails. Now, there's a lot we could get out of this if we had a bit more time here. The fact that Jesus makes, uh, makes it difficult for this lady to engage with him has a present-day application. Do you see that although the process that she goes through here is hard, by the end of it, Jesus has drawn some really important stuff out of her and helped her discover it by expressing it. Her first refusal to engage, uh, sorry, his first refusal to engage with her leads her to worship. His second refusal to engage uh, leads her to declare what she knows in her heart about him to be true. And Jesus sometimes does this in our lives. He isn't in the business of providing instant answers. Jesus just isn't going to satisfy us if we've got a slot machine vision of God. He often makes us wait because he knows that waiting is some way the best way for us to learn. Notice also, even though it's terribly kind of politically incorrect, isn't it? Jesus calls this lady a dog and she accepts it. And there's a sense in which we can never really truly be converted until we've been through that process too. I know there's a lot of pressure on us in this culture uh, to be able to say, uh, to feel able to say that we're beautiful uh, to God and that we're princes and princesses in his sight. But we need to know that all of that is bankrupt unless it's preceded by this more fundamental and much more biblical realization. I know this has been a really important part of my story as a Christian. I am fully willing to acknowledge before you that I am a dog that I didn't deserve to be one of God's children, 
that I was not even a lost sheep. I acknowledged that I was a man made in God's image who was using the gifts that God gave me to defame him and to resist him before he rescued me. And that's the truth for every single follower of Jesus, whether we know it or not. But the big lesson I think Matthew wants us to grasp here is connected once again to how this story fits into the broader structure of the book. Matthew gives us two faith stories in this section of his gospel, doesn't he? Do you remember? Just after the feeding of the 5,000, we had Peter walking on the water. And now just before the feeding of the 4,000, we have this Canaanite lady begging for her daughter to be healed. And both of them bring to life the words, come to me, uh, that Jesus is speaking to us throughout this text. Peter comes and fails, doesn't he? Pointing forward to his three denials later in the story. The Canaanite lady comes and prevails, doesn't she? With a faith that won't take no for an answer, even though she has to ask for help three times. Three times she's asked the question, she sticks with it. But whether we're looking at failing faith or prevailing faith, both stories teach us the need for absolute reliance on Jesus, don't they? And that leads us forward into the fifth and final story of our text here, the feeding of the 4,000. The setup in this last piece is a little bit different from the feeding of the 5,000. This time around, Jesus isn't hijacked. Uh, The the crowd that we've got in front of us here have been with him for three days by the time that we join the action. And the emphasis this time is placed even more strongly on Jesus' compassion. Uh, Recalling an event that we presume he witnessed himself, Matthew tells us that uh, Jesus didn't want to send the crowd away hungry uh, for fear that they would collapse on the way. He could see the world through their eyes and he felt compassion for their limitations. And that's encouraging, don't you think? When we think about our walk with him now, that's a thought just to take out into the week with us. It encourages me to pray when I remember that Jesus can see the world through my eyes and through the eyes of my little kids. He remembers how we're formed. He knows that we're dust. Despite the differences between the two feeding stories, though, the... uh, um, Uh, The point that this feeding story points forward to the cross, just like the first one, uh, is still the most striking feature, I think, of this text. The allusion to the Last Supper when Jesus breaks the bread is actually even clearer here in the feeding of the 4,000. If you read in uh, chapter 15, verse 36, this line, he took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. That's word for word in the Greek, exactly parallel for the whole sentence to what happens at the Last Supper. And the emphasis on the meaning of the sign is stressed once again with the numbers involved, isn't it? When Jesus breaks seven loaves and passes them out to this vast crowd, he's telling us that it's only by breaking perfection uh, that enough for one man becomes enough for many. And we all know what that means, I take it, when we see his body broken on the cross. Come to me is the call once again, because Jesus alone can satisfy But that's not quite the last word that Jesus has for us here as Matthew winds this thing up. Right after repeating the feeding miracle that we saw for the first time back in chapter 14, Jesus repeats another little snippet of teaching that we heard for the first time actually back in chapter 12. Rod highlighted this a few weeks back. Just like chapter 12 in our text, some Pharisees and Sadducees come up to Jesus at the beginning of chapter 16 and they test him by uh, asking him to show them a sign from heaven, as if they hadn't seen enough already. 
And just like chapter 12, Jesus replies by telling them that a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Now, what's that all about? Let's just ponder this for a minute here as we close. Because I don't think it's an accident that our passage ends like this. When Jesus uses those words back in Matthew 12, he elaborates a little bit on that sign uh, and what it is that he's offering. He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's pointing forward to his death and resurrection, isn't he? And it's striking to read that now at the end of our section of the text. Because Jonah was thrown over the side of a boat in a raging storm and he sank. Like anybody would, right? Or at least that's what you would think until you read the text that we just read. Jesus walked on the water. Jesus walked right across the surface of death and chaos and it couldn't touch him. So why in the world does he choose this sign to respond to the Pharisees? Isn't he the one person who's uniquely unqualified to be Jonah? Jesus walking on the water and the sign of Jonah are completely incompatible, aren't they? If you throw Jesus over the side of the boat, he doesn't sink. But just think about the way that Matthew told the story. Because there is someone in our text to whom the sign of Jonah really does apply quite naturally. Remember Peter, Simon Peter, Simon son of Jonah, he steps out of the boat, he sinks like a stone. And that's the nub of it. When Jesus tells Simon Peter to get out of the boat, he knows he's doomed unless something radical changes. And that's why Jesus is pointing forward to the cross through this entire section. The one who is immune to sinking promises to sink so that the one who can do nothing but sink can stand Jesus takes the role of Jonah, so the real Jonahs, Simon, son of Jonah, Neil, son of Jonah, you, son of Jonah, can claim all the benefits of being Jesus. Jesus' call to us, come to me, that call that's been ringing through this whole section of Matthew's gospel, is built on the belief that the water won't swallow us up the moment we get out of the boat. And the sign of Jonah is the sign that that belief is well-founded. Jesus denies like Peter, outcasts like the Canaanite lady, the hungry, inconsiderate people who trailed Jesus around Lake Galilee. All of them, all of us, have the freedom to leave the blind guides of our appetites and our traditions and come to him because Jesus sank so that we could stand. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me want to just grab hold of him with all my heart. And we have communion set out here as a way for us to do it. So uh, let's pray together now. And then as we worship, just make use of these communion tables. If that hand that snatched Peter from the water is the hand that you're trusting will snatch you. Jesus, we worship you. Um, just like the disciples did when you got into the boat, we acknowledge that you are the Son of God and that you do something in this text and you point to something which we cannot do and which we desperately, desperately need. Lord, if we look inside our own hearts, we see only things to leave. 
But when we look at you and we see you feeding and holding and opening your life up to people desperately begging for you to help them, we want to come. And I pray in Jesus' name that you might make that realization of maybe a moment here, Lord, the action, the life story of the years ahead for us. And that when our eyes close in death, that we might see ourselves walking on the water to meet you. In Jesus' name, amen.